Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I'm just praying to God this is a sick... From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. With 1973, an era died an era of profligacy unprecedented in human experience, when most Americans embarked on an orgy of consumption following the lean years of the Depression and World War II. This New Year's Day, symbolized by dim lights, chilly rooms and empty gasoline tanks, ushers in a new era of enforced, if only relative, austerity. If the nation and its leadership react wisely... 1974 will also witness the rebirth of an ancient virtue, thrift, and the development of a new national ethic dedicated to the conservation of rapidly vanishing resources, including such elementary essentials as clean air and water, which generations of Americans have heedlessly taken for granted. (laughs) That, Dominic Sandbrook, was an editorial in the New York Times published on new year's day 1974 and i know that you know that because you actually sent it to me i didn't um, think i wouldn't have sent it to you if i'd known you would uh, that was a would... magnificant display and i'm that sure was... american <laughs> listeners the, american um... listeners will go wow i had no idea that he was Tom american. was american but you seem to be doing that as richard nixon that was very <laughs> nixonian that accent <laughs> i thought so he's president at the time yeah right? so so very appropriate yeah. yeah so that was very moving actually i thought that was um after the alexander the great peroration the other week <laughs> That was in the same league. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're, we're hitting homers, as uh, they say stateside. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so, uh, Dominic, yeah, today's yeah. topic is um, the energy crisis of 1973. Very exciting uh, topic. War, uh, yeah. Seven days a week in Britain. Um, energy seven crisis. days a week. Three day a week. So three day a week, sorry, yes. <laughs> I mean, we always have a seven day week. <laughs> That's true. Uh, three day a week. Um, but obviously, there's a, there's a kind of a, a context in the headlines of the moment that gives there it a is. particular saliency. So there was a kind of there was a panic about um, uh, everyone in Britain filling up their um, petrol tanks. Uh, then there's anxiety about whether the gas will run out over this winter. Yeah. Um, there's a COP is going on at the moment as we're recording this. It will have finished by the time this goes out. But um, huge anxieties about uh, energy conservation there. Yeah. And then, of course, also there's been uh, the lockdowns with um, COVID, which, again, there are kind of certain parallels with the mood of crisis that uh, the old crash of of 1973 um, introduced. So I think it's a a fascinating topic, but it's also fascinating, not just as a kind of mirror held up to uh, our present concerns, but in its own right. It It is. It feels like um, uh, looking back now, it's the year before I was born, but you were, of course, alive. Uh, But it feels like a, a massive it feels like a genuine watershed, doesn't it, in modern history? I think, um, you know, one, two, three hundred years in the future, it's conceivable that people will point to the oil crisis of 1973 and say that's a real turning point in the yeah. relationship between the West and the rest and in globalization and in the decline of American power and all of these kinds of things. So- I think also more broadly, it it kind of pinpoints in a way that I hadn't really thought before 
really profound trends and changes in geopolitics in, yeah. in the 20th century. Yeah, the um, rise of the Middle East. And it's the first time the Middle but East But also the decline under... of Europe. Yes, you know, absolutely. absolutely. So, Europe is really on the receiving end um, for yeah. the first time in centuries. So I think we should, we'll, we'll come to that in, in, in due course. But to begin with, I mean, again, this is kind of very much a period that you're familiar with. You've written about it both in the American and the British context. Um, but it is conventionally thought that the trigger for this is uh, doesn't happen in either Britain or America, but happens in the Middle East with the Yom Kippur War. Yeah, and I think there's there's well we'll we'll sort of pull the camera back and and go into the complexities behind it a little in a little bit. But you're right that there is a sort of sense of a trigger being on a particular day, and that's the sixth of October, nineteen seventy three. So as you say, it's the Day of Atonement in Israel. It is one of the holiest days, if not the holiest yeah, day, the holiest. in the um, so everyone is Jewish going to synagogues and meeting. Up everything has shut down. Yeah, yeah, everything has shut down, and Israel's regional enemies. So countries like Egypt and Syria that were defeated in 1967 seize this as the opportunity for revenge. So at about, because I think about, Israel in 67 has, has seized Suez Peninsula, West yes, Bank. Yes. And, and the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights. Exactly. So it's unfinished business. And for the Egyptians, uh, so that's uh, President Sadat. And for the Syrians, that's President Assad, Assad senior. Um, yeah, dad of they, the current incumbent. Exactly. They see this as the opportunity to strike back. Now, they don't necessarily think they're going to win a crushing victory. They don't think that by any means. But they think that they can change the realities on the ground and in the minds of kind of Western policymakers by showing that they're not prepared to be pushed around, that they're still there, and that they can get a better deal at the end of it, I think. So they strike, I think, after lunch at about two o'clock. And there had been warnings, but there, there had been sort of rumours rather, but they'd all been ignored. They strike kind of Pearl Harbor esque, very Pearl Harbor surprise. Yes, they they so it's Israel is shut down for prayer, and they strike and they make astonishing immediate gains, gains which the Israelis will subsequently push back a bit. But it's this sort of devastating moment, and as luck would have it, on the same day, the sixth of October, the oil, the oil ministers of the OPEC cartel of the OPEC oil producing nations are meeting in Vienna to talk about their latest deal with the big oil companies. And it's the confluence of those two things that is going to change the world. So OPEC is, uh, when is it founded? 19 something? I've got it here somewhere and I can't remember it. 1960. There you go. 1960. So there's Venezuela, but 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 the other ones are mostly Muslim. So Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, Iran. Um, exactly. And they all obviously feel strongly about the Palestinian issue. Yeah. They're hostile to Israel. Yes. And what is fascinating about this is that they had been talk of an oil weapon before. So, so we had lots of questions saying, does this come out of a kind of clear blue sky? Um, and it doesn't, because there had been rumours of it for for years, actually. There had been talk of using the oil weapon in 1967, but it didn't come to anything. Um, but things have changed by 1973. So if you pull right back, what's the context to this? The context is that the Western world, particularly America, but also Western Europe, is is using more oil and importing more oil than ever before. So since the late 1940s, um, worldwide sort of consumption of oil has basically doubled. So the, the energy oil's place in the sort of energy ecosystem has, has doubled. But in America, it's trebled. So Americans have gone from um, consuming 5 million barrels of oil a day to consuming 16 million in the 1940s to yeah. so in 30 years they've gone from 5 million barrels of oil a day to 16 million and they've also started importing them so previously america had been an oil producer itself but it's reached saturation you know they've so you know in texas for example they are now extracting all they can um so they're beginning to import and america now feels more vulnerable and the western world feels more vulnerable so we had one question from um Duncan Hibbard, why hadn't the oil producing countries used their oil power before? So there are two dimensions to it. One is that, that people are using more oil. And then, of course, the oil countries are no longer under the boot of colonial powers. Right. And so, th I mean, that, this is the kind of the, the, when you really pull the camera back. Actually, I mean, it takes us all the way back to the um, our episode on the Industrial Revolution. And the, the, the re one of the, you know, the key reasons perhaps why it happens in Britain is that we have coal. But the 20th century sees coal replaced by oil as yeah. the kind of the key lubricant of industrialization. And obviously, if you have oil, that then 
puts you in a tremendous position. If you don't, then it's yeah. more problematic. America does have loads of oil. And so it's unsurprising that its economy massively takes off in the 20th century. The colonial empires have oil by virtue of ruling empires. Yeah. So the the position, say, of Britain and France, it's hugely it's hugely important to them that they keep their supplies of oil. Right, exactly. Uh, and there's a sense, you know, also if you look at, um, I suppose, Germany in the Second World War, the Germany's lack of oil becomes a kind of crucial factor in its ultimate defeat. Why do they Just, go to the Caucasus? Why yes. do they go to Stalingrad? They're yeah. after the oil. Yeah. So you can you can kind of see the fight to secure oil supplies as being kind of one of the absolutely key motives of geopolitics in the 20th century. You absolutely can. And there's a brilliant book about this for listeners. I know listeners always rightly um, lecture us for our failure to put reading lists online. But if there's one book you should read about this, if you're interested, it's called The Prize by an American writer called Daniel Yergin. It's an absolutely brilliant book. It almost reads like a thriller. It's so interesting about the oil companies and about the geopolitical kind of um, the quest for oil, basically. And, you know, he says this was a prize beyond compare in human yeah. history. Yeah. And, um, and actually, Tom, you're talking about the colonial stuff. There are the big oil producing OPEC nations, particularly Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait. I mean, they're the big players. All of which are under British yes. influence. But then if you look at the, the so-called Seven Sisters, so they're the oil companies, and they are, I have it written down to remind myself, they're the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, that's BP. Yeah. There is Royal Dutch Shell, which is Shell, which is a majority Dutch, but minority British. So the Dutch, obviously, because they had oil in the Indonesia, in Indonesia. Yeah. And then you have the five American, three standard oil companies, which were broken up. Uh, but in the progressive era, um, from one to sort of break up the monopoly. And then you have Gulf Oil and Texaco, and the name suggests they're basically Texas. Um, and you've got Elf, French, the French company Elf. French is Elf, yeah. That's, we, that's kind Elf, of a compound of different various It is. Elf is the kind of mini-tail of, uh, of the oil. <laughs> yes, of the yes, oil. Uh, yes. the French, it's like that French vaccine that they tried to produce for COVID, which they, was a complete shambles and a disaster. You know, it's the, that's how I regard Elf. Anyway, that's one for our French listeners. Um, <laughs> Do we have any? I'm sure. No, I don't think we've ever had a French listener. <laughs> and I think if we did, we'd drive them away within Well, and yes, we had Annie's party. But, yeah, yeah, we did. We did. From her. She's very forgiving. Um, yes. Okay. So, so essentially the, um, the the retreat of European colonialism from the Middle East, which is kind of um, turbocharged by America, really. I mean, so Suez, yeah, you know, plays a key role in that. Actually, is is terrible for America in the long run. It is, and actually, the Americans are really concerned throughout the sixties. They don't want. See, there's a there's a common misconception that the Americans wanted to push Britain out of the Middle East, and that's not really true. It's more complicated than that. The Americans were not fans of Britain's formal empire, but they wanted Britain to remain informally as a Cold War ally. Because the United States is is basically subsidising Britain to keep its right kind of colonial possessions in the Gulf, right? Yeah, and throughout the sixties, throughout the sixties, Lyndon Johnson is saying to Harold Wilson because Wilson, one of Wilson's things is he wants to withdraw from east of Suez. So he wants to pull back from Aden, for example. And the Americans are very jittery about this because they say they, that will basically leave a vacuum that the Soviet Union and Arab nationalists will yeah. walk into. I mean, people aren't worried particularly about Islamism at this stage. They're more worried about kind of Nasserism, about nationalist Arab regimes that get into bed with the communist with world. With the Russians, yeah. Yeah, and that is the big fear because they know about the importance. I mean, they, it, it's a myth that people were unaware of the oil weapon. They knew about it. There had been reports, you know, from the late sixties onwards and warnings. And when you get to about 1971, the OPEC nations are already asking for more money from the oil companies. There. Okay. But that's still, we, we've still got this question. The question from Duncan Hibbard, why hadn't the oil producing countries used their oil power before? I mean, they must know that this is an absolute jugular that they can well squeeze. So why have they not tried it before? So there's pressure from some of the smaller countries like Algeria and Libya. They say, you, you have this power, you know, because this is an age of kind of pan-Arabism, for example, and intense anti-Zionism. So they, they're saying in the late 1960s, why don't you use it? And the key person is King Faisal of, of Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Arabia. Yeah. So he's a modernizer. He's been trying to He's trying to modernize the kingdom. He's doing things like outlawing slavery in the 1960s. And he's a big American and British. He's a woke king. He's a, yes. Yeah. That's, I hadn't thought of, 
<laughs> but he's also very pro-American, right? He's very pro-American, very pro-American, very pro-British. Um, he resists that and keeps resisting it. But the pressure on him is building. And I think you can see m- months before the, the Yom Kippur War that he's going to turn. In, in May 1973, he tells a meeting of American oil executives, you have to persuade your administration to change its policy because I can't hold out much longer. But also he believes it, doesn't he? I mean, he's, he, he, yeah. Well, I mean, he's very, he's genuinely very, very hostile to Israel. He'd like to he, exactly. see the Zionist entity swept into the sea. Yes, he would. Um, but he's by the standards of, you know, yes. some of the people yes. around him, he's a, yes. he's a relative moderate. So in September 1973, so almost literally a month, I think a month and two days before the Yom Kippur war breaks out, he goes on American television on NBC and he says, you can't keep, you can't have both you know, your support for Zionism, as he calls it, and all the oil at such cheap rates. You have to choose one or the other. And it, that interview creates quite a stir in the United States. So it's one of those stories, so common, actually, one of those stories where there's all this in the ether beforehand. And mm. then every, once, once it happens, everybody forgets. Because, oh, of course, that was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there is, yeah. It, it's sort of looming there. Okay. Um, so, that, so, so, so that's the, that's the context for the, for the Yom Kippur War. Let's go back to, um, the onset of the war, it, yeah. it breaks out. Um, Israel is buckling beneath the attack. Um, America starts to seriously worry that that Israel might be completely defeated. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, yes, I suppose but, there's, there's definitely concerns about it. But 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 with reference to to what you were describing about the the Saudi king going on American television and saying you've got to choose between Israel um, and oil. In due course, is it not the case that um, Nixon, who is president at the time, friend of the show, of course. Um, <laughs> a great friend of the show. Great friend of the show. That um, he he gets a kind of message from Golda Meir, the Israeli prime minister, saying, you know, you've got to airlift stuff in to help us because otherwise we're, yeah. we're going under. At the same time as he's also getting a message from the heads of all the American oil companies saying, look, don't, don't do anything to help Israel or we're going to have all the oil cut off. That's exactly what happens. I mean, he basically has the two letters on, in the same morning, I think. The letter from Golda Meir saying, send us aid. We need tanks, we need artillery, we need ammunition. And the letter from the heads of Exxon and um, Standard Oil and so on that says, whatever you do, don't give the Israelis any aid. Um, and he has to decide. And a, a really important factor here, and if we hadn't already done our epic Watergate marathon, which I commend to the listeners if they haven't listened to it already, um, then we could go into this in a big way. Nixon's in the absolute throes of Watergate. He's about yeah, he to get is. rid yeah, of his he's... special prosecutor, Archibald Cox. So he is a wreck of a man. I mean, he's an absolute wreck. And so it's Kissinger. It's Kissinger who, who's yeah. running this. It's really Kissinger who's running this. And Kissinger, of course, is the great kind of geopolitical, you know, chess player. Chess player, exactly, yeah. by his own estimation, yeah. if nobody else's. So Kissinger says, you know, Israel but is. But it is high wo- stakes, isn't it? Because it's, it's, it's a proxy war between America and the Soviet Union. It is, absolutely. They're worried. They put the American forces eventually on nuclear alert because they're worried about the Soviet Union intervening. So Kissinger says, we have to stand by Israel. Israel is our key ally in the Middle East. Um, we just have to do this. So they have what's called Operation Nickel Grass. They're going to send thousands, hundreds of thousands of tons of tanks and, and, you know, guns and all this stuff. Now, here's a really fascinating thing. The Europeans don't want to know that they, they, with the exception of one country, the which is, is well, two countries, actually, Tom, in that case, two countries, Portugal, a Salazarist dictatorship, very, very right-wing, very anti-communist. They're well up for it. And as you say, the Netherlands. Now, I know you're a big fan of the Netherlands. A big fan hence of the, the Netherlands. Hence the name. Yeah. So, um, but, fascinating. But, but, yeah. but Britain and France don't. And Britain, I mean, Britain's inter- – because Britain is historically a, a pro-Israel country, yeah. had been in the 60s. But under Heath, which is kind pro- of – European unity is what matters to Heath. Yeah. He knows that the mood inside the common market, which he has just joined in January 73, is against um, this. Now, the Netherlands so Heath, is different. Heath, Heath refuses to allow American planes to use the exactly. bases in Cyprus. So they use, Port- they use bases in Portugal. So, it's the, uh, Port- so that without the Portuguese help, it would have been much harder for the Americans. Right. And the Portuguese end up being punished for this. And as for the Dutch, you know the story of the Dutch. The Dutch had had a special relationship with Israel based on arms sales. So the Dutch had oh, been. Oh, I thought you were going to say. 
but based on what? Well, I don't know, the Holocaust or something. Yeah, no, no, no. It's based on making money from guns. Right. Okay. <laughs> so the Dutch, and Frank, see, or, you know. see, I, heard, I, I know you worship the Dutch. You have this very romantic vision of them as sort of. I uh, don't, they're hard-headed capitalists. Yeah, they were behaving in a very 17th-century way. Hard-headed. They were. They'd been selling weapons to Israel. So, um, so they actually are one of the. They're the sort of one country that really of the common market that doesn't want to, you know, that yeah. goes against the, the, the general policy and okay. actually wants to support Israel. So, so, so the Americans, <laughs> the Americans have been, they know that they have this kind of OPEC gun pointed at their head. Yeah. Sort presumably, of presumably there is no, um, there's no attempt to disguise the fact that they're airlifting large quantities of tanks. There is an attempt to disguise but, it, but it's completely futile because it's obvious that these massive planes landing and tanks rolling off. So, so here's my question. You said right at the beginning that, um, as luck would have it, the Yom Kippur War starts on the same day that OPEC members are meeting. Yeah. Is it luck, though? Yeah, it or is. is. Or is it this is coordinated? Luck. No, it's not coordinated. It's not it's coordinated. Not coordinated. Okay. It's not because it's very – because it's quite a slow – what we think of as the oil bombshell actually happens over a series of days and indeed weeks. Because the key date then – is the 16th of October, right? So that's six days after the, after the, after the outbreak of the war. What's hap- what's happens? So the 16th ten days, of October, ten days, ten days there's a meeting in Kuwait city. Yeah. So um, they're no longer in Vienna. They've moved. The they've moved to moved. Kuwait. Yeah. What's the state of play on, uh, on the battlefield at this point? So on the battlefield, um, the Arab offensive has ground to a halt. The Israelis have pushed them back. It's sort of got it getting back to this. The Israelis have had a terrible shock. But they are clearly not going to be swept into the sea. They're not going to lose the war. And are they, by this point, does it look like they're clawing everything back? And, and yes, exactly. Gonna... Yes, yes. Um, so, I... so now it's, it's down to OPEC to try and stop Israel from kind of, I don't know, because, because Israeli armies are kind of moving in on Cairo, right? And, and they're shelling Damascus and the, is- the Israelis have made great progress, but I don't think it's so much about winning the war, as it were. As it, don't forget the OPEC, they were already pressing for a better deal. Suddenly, fate has almost developed, delivered into their hands the obvious kind of pretext, if you like, for demanding a better deal. And just the political pressure is such that, you know, if you've got the, they know they have this weapon because the West is guzzling so much oil. Because obviously, one thing we didn't mention, by the way, was cars. I mean, the development of the automobile economy in the, in the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s is such a huge part of this. So, if they're not going to use that weapon now, when when are they ever going to use it? So I don't. I, it's not so much because of realities on the ground. I just think it's a series of, of pressures. So the sixteenth of October, the the, the delegates um, of OPEC six Gulf states massively, massively hike the yeah. the, the price of oil seventy percent, seventy percent in a day. Yeah, wow, and per barrel. I mean, incredible. Um, and the Saudi oil minister Sheikh Ahmed Zaki Yamani. We are masters of our own commodity. Yeah. Now he's a really interesting, he's the mastermind. He's actually the, the protagonist in some ways of Daniel Jurgen's book, The Prize. He is the guy who is the great strategist, um, of the sort of Saudi oil policy. And he absolutely sees this as a chance. You know, we had some questions saying, um, Dave Walters asked a question. He says, is it mainly about suppliers seeking a fairer price for their product? I mean, you can see it that way. Actually, you can say that basically they feel they've been exploited. The profits have gone to the Seven Sisters oil companies for too long. And Sheikh Yamani and others saying, this is our moment. We are going to take back our own commodity and get a fair price for it. And this is kind of the, the point where they all start coming over and buying racehorses and, <laughs> exactly. and all that kind of <laughs> Yeah, they buy up May- Mayfair and yes. know, they basically all immediately the pitch Dorchester up in, thing. in yeah. Park Lane. Luxury hotels and stuff. Yes, yeah. yes. And the next day, the 17th, that's when they start to use the weapon in a more targeted way because that's when they announce – big production cutbacks and embargoes. And they say, you're only going to get oil if you're a friendly country. So if you're Canada, if you're Japan, if you're the United Kingdom, if you're the Netherlands, or if you are Portugal, i.e. those countries that are the most reliable allies of Israel, um, you're not going to get any oil from us. But Britain does, doesn't it? I well, Britain, Britain, Britain kind of got a, got a pass. Well, what they do is they start to cut back gradually. So you get bigger and bigger cutbacks and, and the embargoes become tighter and tighter. So they basically don't, it's not like all one monolithic thing. Right. It's a series of measures. But it's the United States is the real folk. Is, is The US is hit most severely. And it, and it's a, the amazing thing is that it's exactly this moment that Nixon is, is sacking the Watergate prosecutor. I mean, he's staying up all night sweating and worrying about Because Kissinger case. goes to Moscow. Yes. To negotiate. And, uh, yeah. 
and <laughs> everything is falling to pieces all around him. Absolutely. So this moment that um, Kissinger, there's this talk that uh, Kissinger and the generals in America are saying, if Nixon gives you an, an order, don't obey it because he's gone mad and the world is collapsing in ruins and we could have World War Three before we know it. I mean, there's this absolute sense of apocalyptic disaster um, at this moment because, you know, such a big production all these production cuts on so 5th of November, the OPEC countries are going to 25% production cut. It's this sense of a massive injection of inflation yeah. into the world yeah. economy. But also I thought particularly for America, where the availability of gasoline yeah. is just kind of taken for granted, isn't it? 30, I mean, you, 30, you, you don't really 30 pay cents. For- 30 yes. cents a gallon. I mean, they're basically giving it away. And yeah. so that's why all the cars are gas guzzling, because you don't even think about it. So that whenever you watch a film from the 60s and early 70s, you know, I don't, diamonds are forever to pursue our Bond theme. The ginormous cars that they drive are predicated, yeah, are predicated on the fact that gas will basically never cost you anything. So it really is then the end of the American way if suddenly they have to queue up for, for gas. Yeah, I think it's a it's an absolutely colossal psychological shock and it and it's there are all kinds of um ways in which you can see it in america so nixon when he finally drags himself to himself he tells Cong- he tells congress that there has to be nat- the the states have to impose different speed limits he wants daylight saving time he does things like he turns out all the lights in the white house and he takes the light a lot of the light bulbs off the white house christmas tree and there were these extraordinary stories. So he appoints a guy called Bill Simon to be his kind of national energy czar. And Bill Simon tries to work out a system of allocating petrol state by state. And it's a complete and utter disaster. Didn't the he compare himself to Albert Speer? He does. He says he hopes he's <laughs> going to be Albert Speer in the Third Reich. And it doesn't quite work out that way. Well, that's um, <laughs> go to prison for life. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's the stories that his wife stopped using his credit cards because she was so embarrassed to be, you know, people shouted to her in public. Um, because... Gas stations run dry all across the US. People are kind of shooting at each other. There's a shootout in Indiana. There's a man who blows himself up in Pennsylvania because he's been storing gasoline in his, in his, the trunk of his car. I mean, just a real sense of sort of shambles and kind of breakdown. And so this, uh, I mean, this kind of then generates a kind of particular tone of apocalyptic hysteria. Yeah. That we see in films of the kind, of the time. In yeah, science fiction issues. Science fiction yeah. in in lots of kind of books that project the future. Yeah, and I suppose in the long run, the the, the kind of panic about the relationship between the environment and oil consumption that that is still very much with us today, although it's obviously kind of evolved and and been reconfigured. Nevertheless, that sense that um, our use of oil isn't just something innocent; that it might be, you know. That perhaps the only way we can save ourselves is to is to row back on it. This is really when it begins. That that's. I think it absolutely when it begins. I think it's the beginning of two things, Tom. Actually, one is you mentioned it earlier that sense of the decline of the American dream, a dream which is based on the idea of ever expanding economic affluence. There's an amazing quote actually from an American oil executive which you would enjoy. He says it was the ebbing of American power, like the Romans retreating from Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> I do like that. I do, but I also I like this uh, this comment from John Ehrlichman, who is what well, he's a kind of a, a Nixon aide. Yeah, he's one of Nixon's yeah. Berlin Wall. Yeah. yeah. Um, he says, conservation is not the Republican ethic. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wasn't wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but you're right about environmentalism. So 72, 73 to me is a kind of hinge moment for environmentalism because it's an earlier in 73, actually before the oil shock that EF Shoemaker had published his book, Small is Beautiful, which became a real Bible for the kind of seventies ecological movement. And you have all this talk of kind of the limits to growth, the costs of industrialization. Well, we've got a question from Diego Magado. Um, ah, friend of the show. A Marxist friend of the show. Um, did the oil crisis highlighting the dependence on fossil fuels help the Greens and ecological movements to rise politically? Yes. I mean, yes, but in the broader sense, although there is a kind of further complication, isn't there, which is, again, has a massive echo into the present, that um, in Germany, which historically has a look to Russia rather than to the Middle East for its its yeah, gas in particular, very true. Um, there's, a, there's an environmental movement that targets nuclear power. Yeah. So the French particularly, obviously, have, have massively invested in nuclear power. The Germans don't. And I, am I right that, that that 
that is a particular focus of kind of Soviet agitation. A, yes, a desire it is. To, to, to ensure that Germany doesn't invest in nuclear power so that Germany will be dependent on Soviet gas flows. Well, again, and, yep. and, and that's something that kind of runs into the present day. Again. We talked about this in our Angela Merkel podcast, didn't we? Yeah. About that, that German Russian rapprochement about the availability of cheap gas is another of those themes of late 20th, early 21st century politics that maybe we don't talk about very much, but our successors might say is terribly important yeah. in the long run. So that's part of it. Actually, even a very minor example of this ecologically in the Netherlands, obviously initially very badly hit um, by the oil embargo, though it actually hopes it right in the long run. Um, in the Netherlands, they had car-free Sundays. They had car-free Sundays in other countries as well, but in the Netherlands, it really takes off. And, and you know, it's a sort of urban myth. I don't know how true it is, but bicycles, the sort of, you know, the, the emphasis on public transport and bikes yeah. that you see in Denmark and in the Netherlands, that some of that derives from the impact of the oil crisis. I don't know how true that is. It sounds like a little bit too convenient, but... Um, it's well, you know, be nice um, if it was silver linings and clouds. Um, I think uh, we should take a break at this point, um, yes, so that we can advertise consumer durables that will require <laughs> oil and gas to be brought to you. Um, and uh, when we come back, let's zoom in on um, on Europe and perhaps specifically Britain to find out how uh, how the European countries coped. Jolly good. See you then. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. They used to say, go west. What they meant was go forward. Find your own way. Make something out of nothing. It can be tempting to take it easy. But discovery doesn't wait. So this summer, see what it means to make the most of dawn, dusk, and every minute in between. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to The Rest is History. Now, we know that you particularly enjoy our promotional efforts. And we have another one for you now, don't we, Tom? A special offer for Rest is History listeners. I think this may well be the third or fourth time we've mentioned this, but uh, we feel so strongly about it that we, we, we don't care. We don't yeah. care. And the offer is for um, uh, a magazine called Unheard. It's online. Um, online magazine that aims to push back does it not dominic against herd mentality and promote independent thinkers yeah and among the independent thinkers that it has promoted are me top thinkers absolutely top thinkers, top thinkers. and and you yeah um, and today's uh, episode we're we're looking at the 1970s uh and you have recently you've written about that haven't you space hopper don revy manager of england um Inflation at 27%, Harold Wilson in, as Prime Minister. So it's basically the sequel. If you, want to, if you listen to this podcast and you want to find out what happens next, you have to go to Unheard and read this, uh, this article. And also, Are there interestingly, articles, Tom? there is. Yes. Um, <laughs> and although they've prompted, they've prompted me to recommend this, uh, it's an absolutely brilliant link because um, we've actually mentioned Suez and we've mentioned uh, Britain's engagement in the Middle East, um, America's engagement oil, all that kind of stuff. Um, and there was a really fantastic piece by James Barr, um, who's a wonderful historian, written about um, Anglo-French American in- involvement in the in the Middle East in the first half of the 20th century. And he's written one about the Suez crisis, arguing that it wasn't the self-inflicted error brought on by nostalgia that people think, but a rational response to financial pressure. I so genuinely sticking read that article up, and thought it was very good. Very good. Of course, Gone. genuinely. I'm not, I'm not yeah. lying when I say I, that I'm I interested in these articles. I, they're, they're fabulous. I agree. It was a really, really fascinating piece. And, yeah. uh, and, and sticking up for, for British policy in Suez is exactly the kind of pushback against herd mentality that yes. unheard H-E-R-D goes yeah. in for. Um, yeah. And if you want to find out for yourself, there is a special offer. It's three months free and massive saving because normally it's one pound a week so you've saved go to you saved lots of pounds you go to unheard.com slash rest and just a further last reminder that is u-n-h-e-r-d dot com slash rest (laughs) yes thank you dominic and now yeah back to 1973 as prime minister i want to speak to you simply and plainly about the grave emergency now facing the country Jobs will be in danger and take-home pay will be less. We shall have to postpone some of the hopes and aims we have set ourselves for expansion and for our standard of living. We shall have a harder Christmas than we have known since the war. Edward Heath, who else, Dominic? I thought it was Mike Yarwood, actually. (laughs) That was my impression of Edward Heath. Tom, you're on fire with your impersonation. absolutely on fire. You are on fire. fire. Yes, there are why two. Why didn't you great, do? Why didn't there are you two do great your... actors named Tom Holland in this world? Why? why and I'm one of when them. We, when we had Ian Kershaw on, why didn't you do your impersonation then of the subject of that podcast? Because I would get I get myself banned from I the know. Cambridge Union, wouldn't I? You would. You would. <laughs> can't, you can't do that. Well, Prince Harry um, got away with it anyway. Um. <laughs> okay, so that was on the 13th of December 1973, uh, and if Prime Minister Conservative Prime Minister saying warning that we're going to have a terrible Christmas. <laughs> Sounds yeah. familiar. Uh, yeah. That's one of the reasons that we're doing this, because there are certain kind of echoes. Um, Dominic, so um, you've written a fabulous book uh, about the Heath government, um, State of Emergency, The Way We Were, Britain, 1972. If, if I read from the end of that, will you laugh at that like you did Alexander the Great? <laughs> well, I mean, if it's got inspirational messages for young boys and girls out there, no. you. Um, so Britain... It's, I mean, basically goes into a kind of completely catastrophic meltdown yeah. um, as a result of this. Yes, more than anybody else. Uh, more than anyone else. And we really shouldn't have done, really, because we weren't as hit as badly as, say, the United States or, or the Netherlands. Um, no. But, but we, we, <laughs> I mean, we have a shocker. Well, Britain basically has a nervous breakdown. Um, as a result of the, because what the oil crisis does is it shines a very unsparing light on everything that's wrong with Britain's economic and political system. It's a bit so like Britain, COVID. Yeah, I suppose the, so. COVID. I mean, you know, the, the oil crisis and COVID both kind of highlight yeah. ways in which countries are not perhaps functioning um, as best they can. Yeah, and Ted Heath has been prime minister since 1970. He's had this horrifically conflict sort of. Um, contested confrontational three years um uh you know he's had one minor strike already he's had 
endless confrontations with the trade unions. Northern Ireland has kind of descended into the abyss. Uh, everything seems to have gone wrong for him. And in the summer of 1973, he thinks that he's possibly going to turn it around. He's got these incredibly grandiose anti-inflation policies that involve price and wage controls. And then basically the oil crisis hits and everything falls apart. Um, and what makes it so resonant is that Britain had been, as, as you know, you were saying, the, the, colonial the, chief, power. the great imperial power in the Middle East. Yes, and had and, ruled Saudi Arabia, um, Kuwait. Uh, Iraq, Iran. Um, well, it had been the dominant. It the had dominant been the power. Kind of, the the dominant influence. power. Yeah. yeah. And um, I mean, you give the example of. So these countries are all transformed too. By the way, the other country I think that's really transformed by the oil crisis actually is Iran because it's, in Iran they make tons of money, and the economy goes into overdrive. Inflation shoots through the roof, and it's one of the big drivers actually of the Iranian Revolution. The kind of rapid, breakneck, uncontrolled economic growth and urbanization and so on. But anyway, we can save that for a, a future podcast. Well, I did. But I did like the the the, um, <laughs> the Shah of Iran um, in the 1973 oil crisis, lecturing the West, um, saying that uh, you know um, that they've all just been kind of scamming money off you know the the, the riches of the Middle East, and saying <laughs> your young boys and young girls who receive so much money from their fathers will have to think that they must earn their living somehow. Uh, uh, shocking of all people. <laughs> so the Shah of Iran apparently yeah. pocketed is supposed to <laughs> supposed to have pocketed ten billion dollars. <laughs> in oil revenues personally during the 1970s. So he's not really terribly well-placed to lecture others, I think, on um, on, on living within their means. Anyway, um, back to Britain. So what's the, the, the real problem for Heath is he's lost one battle with the miners already, and the miners basically have a knife to his throat. They want a 35% pay increase, and they're asked for that even before the oil crisis starts. I mean, 35% sounds quite big so the, the well i'm going to um this isn't a position i'm i normally in but i, I will defend the miners a little no, bit i'm not saying it's so wrong, their, but their, I'm just, their it's pay high. had fallen behind in the 1960s behind other workers um inflation is quite high so they feel you know their leaders say well we are asking for a fairer wage to keep up with steel workers and car workers and so on a 35 percent is a very high opening gambit um, and heath's pay policy envisaged seven percent the coal board offered them 16.5% and the miners still said no because they think they can get a better deal. Um, well, and they do get a better deal. Is this deal, in 1973? So this is 1973. So no, no, this is, in 72, they've already won one, one so round. Yeah, okay. This is coming back for more. Now yeah. you could argue that in the long run, this does them terrible damage because it destroys their public popularity, that they keep coming back for big pay deals. But at the time, they think, well, we have a loaded gun and we propose to use it. They go into these meetings with Heath. And, and it's incredibly want- dangerous. Well, one miner says to, yeah, it's incredibly dangerous, horrible job. You know, they've still got a lot of kind of sentimentality among the public, a lot of sentimental support. And one miner says to Heath at one point, why can't you pay us for coal what you pay the Arabs for oil? And he has this big thing where he looks around. He says, you know, you called for us in the First World War and we were there. We dug out your coal for you and fought in the trenches. I didn't see any Arabs. He says, the same thing happened in the Second World War. Now, why won't you give us a deal? And Heath finds that question unanswerable. He's, mm-hmm. you know, he's not going to give them – he knows they don't want to hear a big lecture about kind of geopolitical energy policy. Um, so, basically, uh, the, ca- the cabinet meets on the 12th of December and they agree on a three-day week. Um, so, shops, offices, and so on are going to only have power for three days. Uh, TV will have to go off at ten thirty. Floodlit sport, obviously, for an elite sportsman like yourself, this would be yeah, devastating. Terrible. Terrible. Floodlit sport is, uh, and this is when Heath. So it's after that meeting that Heath made that broadcast that you so spectacularly reproduced. Yeah, yeah. eerie. Um, and you have this absolute sense in Britain. <laughs> it was eerie. Well, it's the Wiltshire <laughs> thing, isn't it? Salisbury. That's the connection yeah. that probably explains why. Um, so you have this this um, strange thing in Britain because I always think Christmas 1973 is the kind of peak of apocalyptic pessimism in Britain. So people are talking about tanks in the streets, about coups, about a national government, all this sort of stuff. And yet it's also, to my mind, the canonical Christmas. Because of Slade. Because of Slade. Because Slade are, are, are number one with Merry Christmas, everybody. And if you look at the TV schedules, it really is the canonical lineup. Morecambe and Wise... Two Ronnies, um, the Generation Game, and and Mike Yarwood, aka Tom Holland, 
um, doing his Great impersonations. Yeah. So for so, British, British, I mean, obviously at this so point, so for Christmas it doesn't get cut off at ten thirty. Then does it? Uh, no, I th- that's a good question. Actually, I don't know what happened at Christmas. Oh. Presumably, it didn't get cut off at ten thirty. I'd have to check the schedules. Um, yeah, you've caught me out there. Oh, well, that's excellent. fair enough. That, that makes up for the, that makes up for Diogenes and the uh, um, for, for the, and the uh, jar for the pithos. Yes, <laughs> um, I'll just have to go on and on and on about it. Um, <laughs> but you, I mean, you mentioned about um, uh, anxieties about coups. Yeah, and of course, a very very um, uh, significant uh, star. Uh, top of the pops in 1973 um is very heated about this who he he insists that there's a need for an extreme right front to come up and sweep everything off its feet and tidy everything up david um, bowie and david, david bowie, bowie. David yeah. bowie. top 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 fascist <laughs> top fascist the, sympathizer of the mid 1970s which and then, you wouldn't and then he's seen uh, doing doing fascist salutes at victoria although he yeah, claims Nazi, that he was waving uh, it claims, he claims that he was waving fans. to his fans, but the fa- I've seen—I think I've seen an image of it. It does look very like a Nazi salute. Um, yes, so he was sort of flirting with these extreme personas in the mid 1970s. I don't really want to beat up on David Bowie since he's not here to defend himself. Um, but yeah, there is this sort of weird Weimar vibe in the Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness as well gives an interview to Time Magazine in which he says, "You know, maybe Britain. A lot of people are saying Britain needs a strong man." Um, and this, this sort of panic about, yeah, well, a Jedi, yeah. <laughs> um, there's sort of panic about democracy and about can democracy, is Britain, and, and the, the reason, you know, not just because we're a British podcast with lots of British listeners, but the reason it's important to talk about Britain is Britain is seen as exhibit A. Every country in the world, the press says Britain is what happens when you get it wrong. You know, Britain is a country that has signally failed to cope with the. Is, is, is there also a sense, though, that Britain is was first into the Industrial Revolution and is yeah, first out of it? Absolutely. That perhaps absolutely. that it's kind of like the life cycle of a butterfly, in, <laughs> right. you know, an industrial nation that 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 where Britain leads, other countries are going to follow. Absolutely, there is. But there's also a sense of it being kind of the boot on the other foot and the the former colonial underdogs kicking their kicking their masters. So, so, the, so the classic one of that is um, Big Idi. Idi Amin. <laughs> yeah. Who, the leader of Uganda. Yes. So the, Last uh, who'd been in the, he'd been in the, what he'd been in the Scottish rifles or something. And they used to hit him on the head with a hammer to get him pumped up before rugby matches. So he's now the leader of uh, Uganda. We talked about him with, with uh, Tom Ovalade, didn't we? In our post-colonial yes. Africa. Um, so he offers some of his own savings to help the British. He sends Heath all these telegrams that Heath keeps ignoring. He starts, <laughs> understandably, the, he starts the save Britain fund. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, and at one point there's a fantastic moment where he sends a message to the foreign office and he says listen i've got this lorry load of wheat and vegetables <laughs> and they're rotting <laughs> do you want them or not <laughs> well the ugandan people have kindly donated them to help their british <laughs> friends and it is yeah. kind of i mean Idi Amin is quite a sort of monstrous man but it is very it's comical go- um yes. that he's that he's sort of humiliating britain <laughs> in this way yeah. um and meanwhile january 1974 has come around and britain has gone on to the three-day week and and um, it's not just Idi Amin; it's also Der Spiegel, isn't it? Yeah, who, who writes uh, the swinging London of the sixties has given way to a London as gloomy as the city described by Charles Dickens, with the once imperial streets of the capital sparsely lighted like the slummy streets of a former British imperial township. Oh, yeah, it's, it's damning, isn't it? It's damning stuff. Um, so do you? But uh, actually, the three day week's not that bad, and a lot right. of t- t- so, so so that yeah. that was the pivot. That's the classic Sandbrook pivot. Yeah. So there's all kinds of you know humiliations, disasters, apocalypse, and then you'll turn around and you'll talk about skateboards and space hoppers. Space and hoppers. Say that actually, space every, hoppers. Every, every, yeah. everybody loves. And I thought that that reading your uh, account of the three day week in your excellent book, State of Emergency. Um, there are quite a lot of echo, again, echoes of, of the current, of which the, the kind of panic buying of, of toilet paper is, is one. <laughs> yeah. Which I gather also happened in Japan. I think that, well, the Japanese, of course, are very, the hygiene looms very large yes. in Japanese yes. culture. So yes. they want a lot of okay. toilet paper. So, but, but, but there was panic buying of toilet paper. Um, there was panic buying of, of petrol, obviously, right the way through. But there was also people saying, and here's the, perhaps the lockdown echo that they quite enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. And the newspapers offering very wise advice about how to um, use the time that you're not at work. To spice up your sex life. Well, the Daily Mail runs this column. Uh, Jane, what's her name? Jane Gaskell. She says, um, the kids are doing a five-day week at school, so why don't couples 
and take the chance to be more spontaneous and, in their, and, and dominic going very very meta yeah um i mean is it not possible that with if the three-day week had not happened yeah and that advice not been given yeah we wouldn't be doing the podcast now because you wouldn't exist you'd be doing it with somebody else who would you do it with you, you've got to explain you you've got to explain so that advice was published nine months before i was born <laughs> So I used to, um, when I used to, when I was promoting that book, I'd go around and I'd say, I literally may owe my existence to the Daily Mail. But people thought that the Daily Mail were paying me to say that, I think. So. Well, and to, and to OPEC. Yeah. To shake your money and, yeah. uh, yes. Yeah. And to the columnist of the Daily Mail. What does that tell you? Well, I, I think I might call you OPEC from now on. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, um so yes, uh, so, so actually, yes, people are clearly not having too terrible a time. And, um, Heath, Ted Heath. And, and, and isn't it also, sorry, Dominic, just on the, on the, yeah. the parallels with the lockdown again. Also, is, isn't it a, a fact that actually it's not as, as bad economically as people had, had right. expected? So some people but- see, see this as evidence of Britain's just utter shambolic laziness because they say we don't lose (laughs) (laughs) we lost two days might as well be three yeah well though they say you lost two days and and firms are very ingenious about some i mean there are firms that use water wheels and things to kind of cope and candles so they only lose so that their 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 productivity is about 80 percent despite the fact they've lost 40 percent of their working week so people say well if you can somehow cope then that suggests you weren't working very hard to begin with i mean this is the sort of the foreign commentary about britain that we are very lazy and we're always having tea breaks and stuff. You see this all the time in the sort of discourse of the 1970s. So in a funny way, even our relative success at sort of escaping the worst consequences of the three-day week turns into a stick to beat the British worker with. Yeah, okay, so so a stick to beat the British worker with. But, I mean, what's the truth, Dominic? Are they they just coasting or are they actually reforming, renovating – um, using the the pressures of of the uh, of the three day week to kind of generate new ways of running things, a bit like has happened in the um, in the lockdown. in COVID. Yeah, I think a bit of both actually, Tom. I think if you listen to a, a lot of foreign observers said of Britain in the sixties and seventies that they were quite shocked by the working practices in British factories and offices. So the classic example of that actually is Star Wars, when George Lucas comes and he just can't get into his head that the crew. Uh, making having at Elstree or wherever it is, they're having all these tea breaks. Um, but at the same time, you know, firms are very ingenious. They work extra long hours. They, you know, they find ways of coping with the three day week. So anyway, so it's not as bad as people think. And that's bad news for Ted Heath because he needed a kind of crisis atmosphere and, and he needed the sense of apocalyptic doom because he want, he's going to fight a snap general election on the issue of who governs the government or the miners and the more comfortable people are the more relaxed they are the more they will not feel motivated to go out and vote for the government they'll feel sorry for the miners instead yeah and so actually his big gamble is a is a disaster for him i say the 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 answer to the question of who governs britain is is not you yes exactly and he he loses the premiership goes into a massive sulk (laughs) yes um and 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 so things are set up for the 80s but i suppose also i mean much more importantly perhaps even than that looking at the present is that in britain as in america as in uh, the rest of europe that the legacy of this is to make people question their energy use yeah i think that's right well although you can you would say that in a very very long term but actually the interesting thing is that in the short in the med- short to medium term that's quite an unpopular um, sort of political vision. Yeah. So the person who really comes to incarnate that is the person who, so Nixon comes and goes, he obviously resigns. Gerald Ford has a brief spell and then in comes Jimmy Carter. So Jimmy Carter is Mr. Energy and Jimmy Carter says, you know, we have to, we have to learn the lessons from this. We have to learn the lessons of our dependence on foreign oil. We have to conserve, we have to conserve energy. We have to be more sensible. We have to be more respectful of the planet, all that kind of thing. And he is voted out in a landslide to Ronald Reagan in 1980. And then actually in the 80s, oil prices, there's a glut of oil on the market. So oil is incredibly cheap. And it's as though the lessons are kind of forgotten for a time. But I mean, oil still is kind of relatively cheap. Um, I mean, right, right, right the way up to now. But, but that's not kind of, the anxiety about the use of oil gets, gets divorced from the, the, the cost, doesn't it? 
I mean, essentially what the, what the oil crisis does of, of 73 is to get people th- worrying about its use and where it may lead. And the anxieties yeah. that are consequent on that outlast the, the price spike. And, yes, um, they do. The attempt yeah. of the cartel to... to I think to it's absolutely of- right to say that there's a general anxiety about fossil fuels and about dependence. It's about the idea of dependence, isn't it? It's not. It's the idea of dependence on two things. The idea of dependence on foreign actors that you no longer control, as in these, this is the anxiety of kind of former colonial powers who are now dependent on their, their former subjects. Um, but it's also the anxiety of being dependent on a, on a, on a finite commodity. And yeah. so this is the point at which I think you start getting people writing books and making predictions to say, one day we will run out. And we'll run out quite soon. And what will we do then? So the question from Nathan Hogg, has OPEC power declined since the 70s? I mean, you could say that perhaps one of the reasons why they didn't um, use the embargo uh, and, and the oil weapon as, as they might have done previously is that perhaps wiser heads among them realise that it might be a pyrrhic victory in the long run. Yeah, I suppose but- it is a pyrrhic victory. You're right, because they can. It's also a weapon you can only really use once. I think. Yeah. Um. It's sort of once you've used it, then the people have wised up to it, and they start. So this is a from 1973 onwards. People are making provision for what happens if, you know, if there's a war in the Middle East. What happens if we have to? So when there then there is the next great turbulence in the Middle East, the Iranian Revolution. People are a little bit better prepared for it than they were back in 1973, and then again with the Gulf War in, in 1991 and so on. But that habit of thinking about how do we wean ourselves off oil and off, you know, fossil fuels generally, yeah. Whether it expresses itself through an interest in developing um, nuclear energy or wind energy or whatever, that is a a kind of habit that gets turbocharged in the seventies, and it's one that it's a kind of a, a wave that we're still surfing now. Yeah, into, absolutely. Into the 2020s. So, for example, shale gas, the extraction of shale gas, that that's given a huge boost in America. So Nixon, by, yeah, Nixon. Really. So Nixon has this idea for something called Project Independence. He calls it. He wants a United States that is entirely that is no longer dependent on imported energy at all. I mean, he never really gets it. I mean, it's a sort of pie in the sky idea. But that sort of idea of of ridding yourself from the crippling dependence that's there for the next 30 years or so and then i suppose the next element is which you don't see at all in the in the commentary in the 1970s is we're destroying the planet by burning all this oil because people mm. don't really talk about that particularly in the 70s yeah. it's more the economic costs rather than the sort of environmental costs but now you've got both i mean you've got you've got we've got to wean ourselves off oil because we've got to save the planet and we've got to wean ourselves off oil because the Middle East is an absolute nightmare. It's a, yeah. a, a kind of um, magic mix. And every time we put our hand in it, it just chews <laughs> you, and spits people, bits of finger. Do people um, put their hands in magic mixes? I don't know. Maybe they do. Well, I think I if don't... you're George Bush, they do. Yes. Um, or, or your friend Tony Blair. Um, <laughs> well, whatever. He, he, he had his But reasons. Tom, there's another um, element to this, which you mentioned in your fantastic uh, impersonation of the New York Times, mm-hmm. which is this question of thrift. So it's this idea of the kind of getting back to a kind of Roman Republican virtues. Well, and that's that de- not worked, has it? The, de- the dependence on oil has, is, is, lu- is luxury, basically. Because you saw this even in 1973, 74, in some of the commentary. People would say, you know, we should live simpler lives. We've, we've become the dissipated. Yeah, it's the good life. Exactly. It's that kind of – and it's not just about saving the planet, and it's not just about, you know, not getting into Middle Eastern politics. It's also about being a better person through you know a plainer simpler lifestyle and i think the oil crisis absolutely turbocharges that and there again you have a parallel with covid and the lockdowns because sometimes you would hear people saying you know i've been baking sourdough bread for the last six weeks i'm so happy i don't have to go to work anymore i can listen to the birds yeah 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 exactly no i think i think it's a great topic and uh, i think it's fascinating um both as a mirror but also because obviously, I, you know, it's clear that this is an absolutely crucial pivot in 20th century global history, and in a sense, we're, you know, we're on, we're we're on the one side of that. Um, yeah. So uh, brilliant, Dominic. Thanks so much. That was uh, fascinating stuff. Um, Thank you, Tom. Thank you. And we, yeah, you've, no, we've I, we've never ever had better impersonations on the show. I, I'm aware that I've been letting the side down up till now. I, my my cowboy impersonation was was a terrible <laughs> yeah. one. I normally do a much better one than that. Um, I just. I don't know. I didn't have enough self-confidence, oddly. Um, so what are we doing next that you can do more voices? Our next show is on Australia. 
It's on the oh, early history oh, of Australia. Oh, oh yeah. Do do? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, mate. Oh, my God. Is that Paul Hogan? I can't tell. <laughs> Warn. Oh, yeah. Oh. oh, this is this is so exciting. You're really spoiling us. It's the Ferrero so Rocher of uh, action. <laughs> yes. So huge excitement brewing there. Um, so we'll see you back there. Uh, we'll be going down under. Um, and... Uh, that's my impression of a didgeridoo on that note i think it's time to end (laughs) goodbye thanks for listening to the rest is history for bonus episodes early access ad-free listening and access to our chat community please sign up at rest is history pod Dot com. That's restishistorypod.com. Dot